When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Clam comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Monster. DC Sniper, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, or their employees. This episode includes testimony and argument from trial transcripts read by voice actors. Portions of these transcripts are excerpted for the purposes of this podcast. Listener discretion is advised. We won. We won. That's Malvo's defense attorney, Tom Walsh. I remember standing in court when that verdict came in, standing right beside him, and that was it. That was it. We won. If you understood the case, it, it was basically just two outcomes. They win, they get death. We win, he gets life. And when they came back on December 23rd with life, that was it. Teenage sniper Lee Malvo escaped the death penalty less than a month after his older partner John Muhammad was handed the ultimate punishment. Victims and their families were stunned. When people heard the judge say life without parole, people screamed out as if he was acquitted, you know. I understood the emotion those people had because they thought justice would be the same penalty that Muhammad got. That boy, he's not going to change. He's not going to change his mind. He's not going to change his heart. What's the point to have that guy in jail? He's a monster. I don't expect anything from him. I just expect for him not to have a good life because he doesn't deserve a good life. Ultimately, the Chesapeake jury found him guilty of capital murder and they gave him life. Chesapeake has never given anybody the death penalty, but um, that's the way it is. and. I, I believe in the jury system, and if your neighbors think you shouldn't get death, then that's the way it goes. 
Personally, I think he should have. He knew exactly what he was doing. Malvo sitting in Red Onion prison. It's one of the nation's supermaxes. Uh, it's a very stark facility. He's spending 23 hours a day in a very small cell. He has no physical interaction with any other inmates. And barring some outcome from the resentencing, he will likely be there for the rest of his life. I was okay with life without parole. Now we're dealing with the situation where maybe someday he will walk the streets again. Having grandchildren, do I want to take the gamble that in their lifetime he will walk the streets and take the gamble that he's going to be fine and not revert back to something crazy? There is a ruthless person on the loose. What unnerves this community the most is the randomness of the murders. Ordinary people doing ordinary things. They killed the five people in one day and then went on the rampage for the next month. It is quite a mystery. The police say they have never had a crime quite like this. Be careful. These guys are using weapons that are going to go right straight through our bulletproof vests. There's a white van just went by with two guys in it. From iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV, this is Monster, DC Sniper. Lee Boyd Malvo was sent to Red Onion State Prison in the western part of Virginia, where he would serve his life sentence. Red Onion is one of the strictest supermax prisons in the country. After he was incarcerated, he started talking to people about what had happened, and the details he provided changed the case in ways that no one anticipated. One of the people he talked to was Anthony Mioli, the criminologist who helped Malvo write his autobiography. What we know as the D.C. snipers is really the United States snipers. They shot people from Washington to Arizona to allegedly Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina. So there's a lot of people shot in many, many different states, according to Lee's own words. Investigators had continued to look into other crimes that they thought might be connected to the pair. One crime they investigated was the death of Jerry Taylor. He'd been shot with a rifle while golfing in Tucson, Arizona on March 19, 2002. His body had been found in the bushes with his wallet nearby on the ground. But strangely, his money and credit cards weren't missing. Investigators had learned Muhammad and Malvo were in the area at the time, visiting Muhammad's sister. This was the same trip where they stole a credit card from a Greyhound bus driver. Later, they would ask that $10 million be deposited on that card. But Taylor hadn't been shot by a 223 rifle like the Bushmaster that Malvo and Muhammad had used in their DC attacks, but rather a 308 caliber rifle. Still, the shootings resembled the random killings of the DC sniper attacks, and the fact that Malvo and Muhammad were in the area when it happened seemed like too big of a coincidence. So now that Malvo appeared to be talking, Investigators from the Tucson Police Department went to interview him. This is Detective Jimenez, Tucson Police Department. In going over our file, I, we know that you were in Tucson in early March of 2002. Can you tell me how you and I believe it was John Mohammed got to Tucson? Uh, we got to Tucson um, by Greyhound from Tacoma, Washington. Did he tell you when you got on the bus coming to Tucson that this was a job you were going to do? How, how do you phrase it? I don't know what words you're about. Uh, we're going to go to Tucson. 
um, we're gonna see my sister, and this we're we're here to do we're here to do a job. Did he tell you how much money he was paid to do this job? Usually twenty five thousand dollars to start. You brought your sniper gear down from Washington State. Yes. How did you know he was a golfer? We had an address, and he had some additional information in the envelope. It's one one sheet of paper with writing back and front. Do you know anything about the, the guy? The only thing he showed me was the picture. I wasn't allowed to read anything. John, ever tell you why this guy had to die? No. Since you had a job to do. Yes. We have an address where we're going to. We got there early in the morning. We walk the area and look at what's in the area. There's a houses and there's a golf course at the back. We go out there and we're looking for uh, the guy in the picture. I spot the man and what he does is after hitting the ball for a couple hours, he comes down the slope and picks up all the balls with the machine. How many days would you say you spent at the golf course hiding and watching this, this particular man? Probably three, three days in total. The day that this guy is shot, the time you get out there in the morning. <laughs> that evening, he says, you have to do this. And I said, no, because I've never done this before. And he said, you're going out there and do this. Is this the first time you shot? Killed somebody. But it was the first time you shot and killed somebody with this rifle. Yes. That evening, as soon as we talked, I have to go back out there on the last bus and stay out there and prepare in the night. Where do you have the rifle? The rifle is in um, in the case and in the green duffel bag that goes over my back. So you have the duffel bag on the bus and the rifle is in a case inside the duffel bag. Yes. Did you ever get questioned? Anybody ever? Looking at the bag, you wouldn't really question. You know, it's like a camper's bag. What kind of rifle was it? It's a 308. Nine inches was cut off the original barrel so that it would fit easily within the bag. And there was a, a temporary suppressor. Where did you get that weapon? The weapon was bought by Earl Dancy. So you get there the night before? Yes, because I know he picks golf balls. I put golf balls on the slope. So you're setting the balls to draw him to the area where you want him to be? Once he sees those, it's basically bait. He goes after Malvo says that he wore camouflage clothes and hid under a tree covering himself with a net and branches. He camped out all night, so he'd be in position the next day when Jerry Taylor went golfing. All right, so when does the guy show up? Between 12.30 and 1. Had he hit any balls prior to coming down to that area, that sloped area? The, the thing is, where I was, I couldn't move to get up and see him, but I knew he was going to come down, and that's all I'm waiting on, because he, he's the one that always does it. He does it last two days, comes down the slope, and picks up all the balls. All right, so you're, uh, you're there waiting. He goes down there and starts picking up balls. He came close to me. He walked by and picked up the first ball and then went around. I'm right here, and he's right here. So I'm going six feet of you. Yes. He's a little bit above me because I'm down at the ground. So in a traditional military sniper position, yes. you're laying in the building? Yes. All right, is this a rifle with a scope? Yes. So you had him in your sights? Yes. Then he came back and was going back up the slope. That's when he was shot. He fell, lays down, and there's no movement. And I started to back up. Then he got back up and started walking. He starts going up the slope. He didn't die immediately, and I, I had to go out there and get him. And once I got him, I pulled him here, 
So you went after him, you grabbed him and drug him down? Yes. Okay, does he say anything to you? Yes, he said, he, uh, he was saying, he was saying something to me. He was saying something? Do you, do you remember what he said? He was, it was, it was basically groans because it was like something filling up his mouth and so it was just groans. But you could tell he was trying to say something. Was he looking at you? Okay. So you drag him into the bushes? Yes. Drag him by the arms, the legs? The legs. By the legs? Yes. You take his wallet? Uh, I take the wallet, look at the picture, and drop the wallet. The bag was not far from there. It was like laying under a, a boulder. Pull it out, put the weapon in two pieces, close it up, and then put it in the bag. Go out to the uh, bus stop. Get to the bus stop, what do you do? I get to the bus stop, I sit beside him, and I'm, I'm jittery. And he says, calm down, no one knows you've done anything. How old were you at the time? Uh, that's 17. You're 17 years old at the time? Now that this all is, is done, and, and you know, and, you know, you've been through a, a lot in the last couple of years with these proceedings, is there, why are you talking to us? I'm talking to you because I'm sorry. Sorry, what I did. Is there something you want to say to the family, or? I uh, can't bring him back. I'm sorry. Thank you very much. We're going to go back to Tucson tomorrow morning, and we're going to have to talk to the family, and we're going to have to tell the family that somebody that knew this man wanted him dead. And this is going to be terrible news for them. According to the Arizona Daily Star newspaper, police had no doubt that Malvo killed Taylor. But Taylor's daughter, Cheryl Witz, said she couldn't imagine anyone wanting to hurt her father. And police never found evidence to support Malvo's claim that it was a hired killing. So was Malvo lying? Or did Muhammad's underworld dealings extend beyond smuggling people across borders? Was he working as a hitman as well? Or maybe Muhammad lied to Malvo? and this was part of how he groomed Malvo for the DC attacks. Anthony Mioli, the criminologist who helped publish Malvo's autobiography, says Malvo never mentioned any contract killings to him. The idea that this was a contract hit to me is total hogwash, but Lee also referenced the fact that he shot 36 people. Lee himself shot 36 people and killed over 20 of them. He also said that John shot as many as 70 people. Now, I don't know how true that is, but he said I wouldn't put it past him that he shot that many people because he was always out doing bad things. Malvo told Mioli that during the time he started killing people with Muhammad, he believed deeply in the Nation of Islam-based philosophy that Muhammad had been teaching him. Muhammad had him eating only a single small vegetarian meal a day and would give him 72 different vitamins and supplements. Malvo might have been even more of a true believer than Muhammad. Malvo says shortly after Muhammad had him shoot Kenya Cook in Tacoma, he confronted Muhammad about inconsistencies he was seeing. Muhammad had been telling him that the white man was the devil, but he was dating a white woman. He was in a relationship with this white lady. I mean, you're talking all this nation Islam stuff, but you're dealing with this white woman. I mean, I came out here to help you get your children back. I mean. You just had me blow somebody's brains out. What's up? 
So a week or two after the first shooting, he came out of the YMCA. He had a F-150 was right at the time. And I sat behind him. And I had a four to five in his back. I said, look, you called me out here and you said, I need to get my children back. That's why I'm here. You can't talk, you know, the white man is the devil. And then you messing with this woman. It's either your kid or her. Make your mind up and make your mind up right now before I put two rounds in. There's some quarters in the dashboard. Go pick those quarters up. You go step out the truck, walk to the phone, make the call, and say it's over. And that's a wrap. I need to hear it. You had actually at that moment bought entirely into his plan. Yes. I mean, but the plan, as far as I was concerned, was make money along the way, find the kids, take them, go to Canada, go to flight school, and do what you want to do. That was the layout. It changed along the way. Malvo says Muhammad had put together a list of cities with people named Mildred Muhammad in them. He says they began traveling across the country searching for Muhammad's ex-wife and his kids. They first stopped in Los Angeles in February or March of 2002, where they shot a man. Details about this killing are sparse, and the victim has never been matched up with the alleged crime. Malvo says they went on to shoot and kill Jerry Taylor in Arizona in March. Then Malvo said they continued east, and a couple of months later, Muhammad shot another man at a golf course in Florida. Investigators connected this to the mysterious shooting of 76-year-old Albert Michaelsick. Michaelsick was shot while golfing in Clearwater, Florida on May 18th of that year. Malvo also confessed to involvement in the May 27th shooting of Billy Jean Dillon in Denton, Texas. Dillon was murdered while doing yard work. But Malvo told Mioli that he and Muhammad committed so many crimes that they all started to blur together. I mean, if we went somewhere for a week, someone was getting either robbed or something was going to get pulled. There was going to be some violence. It got to the point where he said, I created a fucking monster. During this time, he had several nervous breakdowns. And each time he came out of those, his need to bloodlet would be greater and greater. His need for violence would be greater and greater. It would, it would just escalate. He was on a downward trend and I was on the train with him. I was attached. After the Denton, Texas murder, Malvo says he and Muhammad then traveled to a gun show in El Paso, Texas, where Malvo stole the 22 revolver they would later use to shoot Paul LaRufa. Then they went to Hammond, Louisiana, where they crossed paths with a man named John Gaeta. It was a normal day. I went to work and um, I went home and I was going to return to work to catch up on some stuff. And I decided before I did that, that I would stop at the mall, Hammond Square, and do some shopping. I did so, and I made a purchase, and then I came out, and I went to drive away, and I noticed that I had a flat tire. I could have driven just a little short piece to a service station that's right in front of the mall. But I just parked my truck. That night, it was dark, of course. Yeah, you have the parking lot lighting. I was just assessing the situation, and I was getting some tools out. There were two black men that walked right by me. They said, looks like you have a flat tire. And they kind of laughed under their breath. And they asked me if the mall was open. Well, I knew it was closing, but just to buy myself more time, just you know, make sure they weren't up to something. I said, uh, it might be. I said, you could check. So 
something to that effect. I didn't see where they came from or where they went, and I um, went to the back of my vehicle because that's where you would retrieve the spare tire. And I saw a figure hunched over and running from the back of my vehicle to the front. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm not ready for this. And I said, I'll just go to the other side of the vehicle and say, what do you want? So I went around to the passenger side of the vehicle. And when I did, Malvo met me face to face. He was about maybe six feet away. Before I had a moment to think about anything, I don't even know if I ever got out, what do you want? He just raised the pistol and shot me. I thought he was aiming for my head, but the bullet struck me on the right side of my neck. I just remember falling to the ground. I just felt like the, the safest thing to do was just lay there for a few minutes. I don't remember feeling that they were like reaching in my pocket. But I noticed my wallet was missing without thinking that I might have a spinal injury or anything. I was going to walk to the service station and just call for help. Before I did, there were some people like passersby. And so they came up and they said, sir, you're bleeding. Are you okay? And I kind of looked at my shirt and there was you know, blood on my shirt. And at that time, I heard the ambulance siren. They took me to the hospital and they treated me. The doctor said that when he got the call, he said, well, this guy is going to come in either paralyzed or dead. The bullet had entered my neck. It traveled from the right side of my neck to the left side of my upper back, uh, crossing the spinal cord without doing any damage. I felt like I could just have went back to work that next day. I don't like missing work. And my friend said, no, at least take the weekend or a week or whatever, you know. When my vehicle was brought to the provider who was going to fix the tire, they noticed that the puncture on the tire was on the sidewall. If you get a flat tire, it's on the treads. But in this case, it was like the tire was purposely slashed so I would, you know, not be able to drive off. Malvo and Muhammad then traveled to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Muhammad's hometown. Friends and relatives said it seemed like he was going out of his way to talk and visit with people he hadn't seen in years. He lied to people, telling them he was still married to Mildred, that he was doing well and that he owned houses in Canada and the Caribbean. And it was here that Malvo says Muhammad first told him about his plan for the DC attacks. Muhammad had a plan that would have extended far beyond the horrors of October 2002 if they hadn't been stopped. This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All 
these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
In 2006, Muhammad, who was already on death row in Virginia, was prosecuted in Montgomery County, Maryland for the six murders that took place there. Malvo was prosecuted as well, but he pled guilty and agreed to testify against Muhammad and share new details about the case, including John's full plan. Here are excerpts from Muhammad's Maryland trial with prosecutor Catherine Winfrey questioning Malvo. Winfrey and Malvo's quotes are read by voice actors. Now, did you go back to Louisiana in mid-July of 2002? Yes. Now, when you were with him, what would the two of you do? We would visit people he was dealing with at the time. Did you feel like a member of the family? Yes. Did you come to love Mr. Muhammad? Yes. Did you tell him you loved him? Yes. And how about his feelings for you? Did he tell you that he loved you? Yes. Did you believe that? Yes. And did there come a time that Mr. Muhammad told you he had learned where his children were? Yes. We were in Baton Rouge at his brother's place. We were across the street in a gully, sitting on a log. He told me, the children are in Maryland, just outside D.C., and he explained that we're not going to get the children. Not yet. He explained to me what was going to happen after we left Louisiana. He said we were going to go to the Washington, D.C. area, and we're going to terrorize these people. Every day, there are going to be six shots, six slangs a day for 30 days. And after the 30 days, what was going to happen? Phase two was to create much more damage by using improvised explosives. We had ball bearings or nails. Usually what I was told was we get schools, school buses, hospitals, children's hospitals. Everything is around children. Malvo later elaborated on Muhammad's plan when he spoke to Mioli from prison. We were in Baton Rouge, I think either July or August. He explained to me that we're going to go to D.C. and we're going to terrorize these motherfuckers. Those were his words. And we're just going to go into that region and just wreak havoc and shut it down. Because all these people care about is their fucking money. And if you disturb that process and let people know that they're not safe anywhere at any time, this system is no longer viable. So when he explained it to me, I said, listen, man, we've been robbing and doing what I doing what you asked me to do. And we made, you know, X amount of money. You have the passport, you have the contact. We know where the children are. Why not just kill them and leave? I mean, that's, that's the whole story. I mean, what's this? He's like, no, I'm going to get back at these motherfuckers for what they did to me. I'm going to kill two birds with one stone. I'm going to get my children and we're going to terrorize them. They're going to know what they have done. In the Maryland trial, Prosecutor Winfrey asked Malvo about what happened next. What did you do after he told you about this plan to terrorize? He was gone during the day after he told this to me. I sat in the bathroom, played Russian roulette for several hours with the 22 revolver. I loaded one round, spun, put it to my head, fire, 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 until I reached the fourth round, and then I realized this was the round, and I just, I just broke down. I couldn't do it. Now, from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, did you return to Tacoma, Washington? Yes. And while you were there, did you steal a 223 Bushmaster high-powered rifle? Yes, from Bullseye. It's a gun shop. Now, did there come a time in late August of 2002 that you and John Allen Muhammad left to come to Washington, D.C.? Yes. We came to Clinton, Maryland first to scope out where his wife and children was. At first, 
he sent me to go knock on the door to see if it's his wife. I went, knocked. She was sitting in the living room watching television. I recognized her face based on pictures that I've seen earlier. I returned and told Muhammad, yes, that's her residence. Then there's an area with the fence directly across the street. From there, I'd watch when she left. Who came there? What did the children do? When did they leave? Basically surveillance. And did Mr. Muhammad take his children during that time? No. He said, not yet, not yet. Mr. Muhammad had several looks. When he said, not yet, accompanied with that look, it meant it's final. Didn't ask him any more questions. Whenever he spoke about his wife, what were the emotions that he displayed? You could tell he was uncomfortable with her having his children. He was angry. Did Mr. Muhammad ever discuss September 11th with you? Yes. He said bloodshed begets bloodshed. It's a process, and America begun this. Osama bin Laden didn't develop in a vacuum. They trained him. They taught him to fight the Soviets, and it came home. He hated this country. He hates this country. Did he tell you why he hates this country? Slavery, the hypocrisy, their foreign policy, just the entirety of the nation. Malvo said that after confirming that Mildred and the kids were living in Clinton, Maryland, Muhammad had him rob Paul LaRufa outside his restaurant. And then, with LaRufa's money, they went to New Jersey to buy the Blue Caprice. Malvo says they then drove to the southeast so they could modify and test out the car outside of the D.C. area. What was the reason you stopped in Montgomery, Alabama? The modifications were fully made. He wanted to test them. We found an ABC liquor store. There's a car wash across the street. I sat there, pretended to read the Armalite gun magazine. I had two jobs. To see, when it's all over, if I could tell where the shot was coming from, and my main goal was to be the pickup man. I was supposed to run, pick up the bag, and then head directly to the pickup spot. Now, what happened after Mr. Muhammad fired the two shots? I went to the front of the ABC. The two women were laying on the ground. The black lady was on her back, and there was blood around her head. The, um, the white lady was laying. There was blood on the concrete around her body. Both of them were not moving. I was frantically looking for the bag because I know I only have so much time. I grabbed something. I, I can't remember exactly. Once I grabbed it, I heard, freeze, and I took off. The officer was running behind me. I jumped the fence and jumped another fence, then went into the car, and then went directly on the highway and left. Now, at some point, did you head back north? Yes. We drove all the way up to Montgomery County to begin the shootings. Why this area? Why Montgomery County? He said it was middle class, well off, mostly whites, that it was a perfect area to terrorize. And who would choose which actual shooting you would do and which one Mr. Muhammad would do? Mr. Muhammad would make the choice. May I direct your attention to Wednesday, October the 2nd of 2002, about 6 o'clock in the evening. Did you and Mr. Muhammad go to the shopper's food warehouse? Yes. We went to the YMCA on Wednesday morning. Then that evening, we, uh, that's when everything began. That's when he said, today's going to be the first shot. Who was driving the car? He would drive in areas like this because I did not have a license. And then what happened after he parked the car? He stepped over his driver's seat, went into the back, and entered the trunk. What was your role? You're sitting in the front seat. What's your job? 
Make sure there's no one walking by on the sidewalk and there are no cars stopped. And did you see his target, Mr. Malvo? An elderly white male in a brown suit. And once I told him he had to go, the shot was taken. What happened after Mr. Muhammad shot Mr. Martin? He fell. Mr. Muhammad came up. I went into the back, disassembled the weapon. Do you remember where you went after Mr. Muhammad shot Mr. Martin? No. Was there a plan for the next day? Yes. We're supposed to get at least five shootings, possibly six. Malvo later told Mioli that things didn't go exactly as planned. Or at least, things deviated from the plan that Muhammad had been telling Malvo. Suddenly, their plan went from shooting five Caucasians to now basically shooting five of any human being. Obviously, it's easier to shoot people of multiple cultures because there's more people around. It would also, if only whites were being shot, it might have been easier to develop a profile that our shooters are African-American. Here's more of Mioli's interview with Malvo. Did, did you think that John was racist towards whites at all? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in nation, it's philosophy, the white man is the devil. So if he was preaching racist idealism and the hatred of whites, why would other races be targeted during the Beltway shootings? You've seen the Matrix. There is a scene in which Morpheus is training Neo and they're walking in the street. He says everyone's a part of the system. So as far as Muhammad was concerned, if you participate in the system, you are an enemy. And the system is the white economic system that the whites have created as a system of control and have convinced every other nation or people on the planet that this is the system to adopt, this is the way to go. And after the very first day of shooting in the Beltway sniper shootings as we know them, Lee realized emotionally he could not do this. It was too much for him to do, which is why after the first day, there was a bit of a drop off. So the plan went off the rails even from day one. We didn't realize it was going off the rails, but according to Lee, it was. And Mioli says that the latter phases of the plan were even more sadistic than what Malvo described in the Maryland courtroom. Phase two was even worse. The original phase two was, it was supposed to take place in Baltimore, Maryland, and they were going to shoot a pregnant woman. The reason why that shooting was going to be so horrific was the nation would say, wow, these people do not care at all. The idea was that when they started to investigate the case, they were going to kill one of the Baltimore police officers. He's going to have me walk up to the officer, ask him a question, shoot him in his forehead, cut his head off, and leave it on the seat. That's going to spark outrage. The mayor, the governor, a lot of people are going to come out, the entire police department. We knew where they buried their officers. He was going to take explosive devices, which he had, which he made, and he was going to lay them. They were going to use improvised explosive devices at the funeral. And while they were going off, they would wait a few minutes and then use them again when first responders arrived. There was going to be the immediate police and the entire gathering, basically wipe out the entire police department. And then there were going to be secondary devices for the ambulances and fire trucks and everybody who responded after that. As if that wasn't bad enough, when they phase three began, they would extort money from the government. They were going to say, you can't stop us from doing this. 
and we want $10 million. The third phase is to disappear and take children like myself and train them and then release them into the world and replicate the process in different ways. But Malvo told Mioli the plan quickly fell apart because Malvo couldn't emotionally handle what Muhammad was asking him to do. Lee lined up the pregnant woman, but he decided he couldn't shoot her. So really, phase one and phase two never happened simply because Lee could not do it. His conscience would not allow him to do it. So if John tried to develop a killer who had no moral compunctions whatsoever, he was unable to do it. Lee, for some reason, drew the line at killing a pregnant woman. He was willing to shoot a 13-year-old child going to school, but he was not willing to kill a pregnant woman. And Mioli doesn't buy that the shootings were strongly motivated by the Nation of Islam ideology. Mioli thinks Muhammad and Malvo were just angry and escalating their murder spree. Were the Beltway sniper shootings this alleged brainwashing job that needed to get done in order to rid the system of whites when none of that panned out? Or was it a case where a man who was angry and spiraling out of control emotionally along with a self-hating, angry young man, started shooting random targets for their own personal satisfaction. Nothing went along with the plan, nothing went along with the phases, and nothing seemed to go along with the belief system. So that's why I have trouble believing in this whole indoctrination, because the killings don't jive with that story. It doesn't make sense. In my opinion, they were unraveling. We often see this in whether it's serial shooters or spree shooters or even serial killers. When killers have a compulsion to kill, eventually they start making mistakes because their compulsion overrides not only common sense, but you know their criminal intellect as smart as they were when they began their plan. They start making mistakes, they start leaving clues. In this case, they even start leaving tarot cards. You know, handwriting is traceable. They leave voices. Eventually, Malvo's, you know, fingerprint is tracked. So eventually things do unravel, but that's usually what we see in these cases is the killers start to get sloppy and they start to get emotionally worn. You know, these are human beings taking lives. If people think that it's not an emotional toll to do that, they're mistaken. It's something that a lot of serial killers have told me that there's only so much soul that they have and eventually it's gone and they start making mistakes. And here, this was a physical one. Lee fell asleep on the watch when he should have been awake. If they had been listening to the radio like they should have been, like he was, he would have known that the APB had been out for the license plate and they would have changed plates and never gotten, at least not gotten caught that night. It's my professional opinion that by themselves, they would not have committed these crimes, but together they made for a perfect duo. We've seen this before many times where by themselves, they both have animosity. They both have maybe some tendencies towards extreme violence. One of them may or may not possess some type of mental disorder. We see that time and time again. Bonnie and Clyde are a perfect example of this. Investigators learned more about Muhammad and Malvo's relationship at Muhammad's trial in Maryland in 2006. 
After being questioned by prosecutors, Malvo was cross-examined by the defense, and Muhammad was defending himself, so the pair came face to face for the first time since they were arrested. This would also be the last time they interacted. Muhammad began by questioning Malvo about the period when he first arrived in Washington State. Here are excerpts read by voice actors. Can you tell us who Mary Merez is? She's a white lady who was your girlfriend at the time. Can you tell us about Alan Archer? Mr. Archer runs the shelter. He's a very kind, compassionate guy. Okay. Do you remember me, you, and Don Holland sitting down at his table and his wonderful wife cooking dinner? Yes. Okay. So the first four people that you met pertain to my life in the state of Washington was white? Yes. You mentioned I called a white man the devil. That is true. This is true? And how close was me and Mary? You were close. Okay. Mr. Malvo, you mentioned that you was indoctrinated. Did not the experts in your trial state that Malvo was indoctrinated by Muhammad? Yes. Let me ask you something. Do you know what indoctrination is? Yes. Okay. What is it? Indoctrination is a process under which the person who came under influence is brought to do things he wouldn't have done on his own. So a person, according to your definition, a person can be indoctrinated to do what is right. Isn't that correct? Yes. Sorry, I didn't hear you. Yes. He heard the answer. Your Honor, she can't tell me what I heard with my own ears. Is it your testimony that one of the reasons why you were attracted to John Allen Muhammad was because the way I treated the children was the way that you wanted to be treated? Yes. Okay. And then did I not treat you that way? For a period of time, yes. Okay. Before the period of time you were talking about pertaining to these crimes, did I not treat you that way? Yes. Okay. And why did John, Selena, and Taleba call you their brother? Can you answer that for me? You sat them down and introduced me as part of the family. Do you remember a time happening in Antigua that Andrea, my girlfriend, almost drowned? Yes, you were off the island. And before I left, who did I give the responsibility of those children who I hold dear and near to my heart? Me. Correct. And something happened when I was gone. A gentleman almost drowned. Is that correct? Yes. And Andrea went into the water trying to save him. Is that correct? Yes. She almost drowned. Yes. And Selena called for her big brother. Who was her big brother? Me. And when her big brother came, her big brother pulled Andrea out of the water, didn't he? Yes. And then Andrea told you something that you didn't know at the time. My son, Little John, was in that water. And you went back and got him, didn't you? Yes. Why? Why? Because I love him. Isn't it true if you wasn't there, that boy would have lost his life? Yes. Okay, so what I asked you to do was to take care of my family. Did I indoctrinate you? Then, no. Muhammad spent much of his cross-examination trying to twist Malvo's words to cast doubt on his testimony. At times, it felt like he was giving the rest of the world a glimpse of how he might have bullied young Lee Boyd Malvo into submission with his words. But now, four years later, 
21-year-old Lee Boyd Malvo was better equipped to fight back. You stated that you went into the Bullseye store. Yes. Okay. When you went into the store, was it people in the store? Oh, yes. I noticed you said that quick. Was there a reason why you responded so fast to that? Objection. Was there a person at the front door, a cashier or something like that? Yes. And was there other people, customers, everywhere else in the store? Yes. And you had a case? A gun case. Okay. How big was it? It was big enough for the weapon to fit in it. Okay. Now, take us through exactly what you did. I came in, and according to the plan, once both the security guards were distracted, I picked up the weapon, break it down, the case is already open, put it in, close it, and walk out. You mentioned earlier that the case was long enough to contain the weapon, is that correct? Yes. And then you also stated that you broke the weapon down to fit into a case. Can you tell us why? It was on a bipod. I had to break the bipod down to put it in there. And then you walked out the door? Yes. Okay, let me ask you something. Do you have an invisible suit on? Objection. Let's go to the bus stop. Do you remember stating that we also went to Hawaii? I said that. And how long did it take for us to get to Hawaii on the bus? That was a lie. That was a lie? Okay. You also say we went to Alaska, is that correct? Yes. How long did it take for us to get to Alaska on the bus? That was a lie. That was a lie too? Okay. Uh, you also stated that we went to Maine, correct? I remember Alaska and Hawaii. Do you remember Sam Walker asking you, where did you learn how to shoot? And you said Alaska, Maine, and Hawaii? I said a lot of things I can't recall. I can't recall details of my statements. So you say a lot of things in your statements, just like you said a lot in the courtroom right now. Objection. That wasn't true. Objection. After Muhammad finished his cross-examination, prosecutors were given another chance to follow up with Malvo. I want to specifically ask you about some of the questions that Mr. Muhammad asked you. He asked you some questions about Mary Merez, the woman that he had a relationship with. Yes. How did he make you feel about white people at that point in time? Hate. You still feel that way now? No. Mr. Muhammad asked you a lot of questions, Mr. Malvo, about whether you saw a difference in the way he treated you and his own sons. What was the difference that you perceived in the way John Allen Muhammad treated his biological sons and the way he treated you, Mr. Malvo? Mr. Muhammad did not use any of his children to murder other people. When you talked to detectives in Fairfax prior to the trial, you hadn't heard the testimony of the witnesses. So where did you get the information? I was there. He was there. And I knew what we both did. That's all the questions I have, Your Honor. This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love 
into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Muhammad was found guilty again and was sentenced to life without parole. He continued to fight against his Virginia death penalty sentences, but he soon ran out of appeals. His execution was set for November 10th, 2009. Here's Paul LaRuffa a survivor shot outside his restaurant in Clinton, Maryland. I didn't want to go to his execution, and I wrote a memo which basically said, I, I understand 
you folks being there. I understand your need to be there. I don't have a need to see him die. And I don't want him to take another day out of my life. I'm sorry at any death, but I think if anybody deserves the death penalty, it was him. Here's Cheryl Witz, the daughter of Jerry Taylor, who Malvo confessed to shooting on the golf course in Arizona. Witz was interviewed right before Muhammad's execution. Anybody that can do the things that he did, brainwash a child into killing all the people that he did, do all this to all the victims, the families, his own family, he, he, he's an animal. He's a monster. What was your view of the death penalty prior to this tragedy? Well, I really wasn't for the death penalty because I just didn't believe, you know, it's going to bring the, the victim back. But after he killed my father, I knew that if he got the death penalty, I would be sitting in this chair and watching the execution. I just, I have to witness that. I need to witness that. In Virginia, the execution room or death chamber as it's also known, contains a cross-shaped bed with arms made to facilitate injections. Two walls of the room have mirrors, one-way mirrors behind which are rooms full of spectators, one for victims and their families, another for lawyers, press, and Muhammad's family. Muhammad's ex-wife Mildred says her children wanted to see Muhammad before the execution. They said, Mom, you know, we really want to talk to Dad. So I called the warden. The warden said I would need to put their names on the docket and that John would have to agree to see them. He said, but Ms. Muhammad, your children are under 18. He said, so that means you have to come with them. Oh, oh no, sir. Mm-mm. I will find somebody else to bring them, but I am not going in there. But John would not put their names on the docket. So we get to the day of the execution, and the media is reporting all of his visitors, one of his sons and some other family members. So my son says, so why all of them are there and we're not there, Mom? What's up with that? I said, I am not going to make excuses for your dad. It's his choice. So his attorney said, I'm going to call you before he goes into the chamber. Make sure that your children are right there so he can talk to them. So as we're watching TV, I see the gentleman coming to the microphone. I say, yeah, this is not gonna be good. At 8.58, John Muhammad was walked into the death chamber. He kind of staggered in. He was in a blue shirt, blue denim jeans. He's kind of being held up by corrections officers. He looked around mostly to the floor. He was very clean cut. They strapped him in by his legs first, then his waist, then his arms. Then the blue curtain was shut. Now, Department of Corrections officials tell us the blue curtain was shut, so most of the people in the back uh, administering the execution, they could protect their identity. At 9.06, they pulled the curtain back. You could see Muhammad strapped there. They asked him right after that, Mr. Muhammad, do you have any last words? Didn't say anything. At 9.07, you could see him twitching a lot. You could see his, him blinking a lot. And you could see his breathing increase. At 9.08, uh, he sat there, he was there motionless. At 9.11 p.m., Muhammad was pronounced dead.
I went to the execution. This is Nelson Rivera, whose wife Lori Ann Lewis Rivera was shot and killed on October 3rd, 2002. You know, with the pain and all the anger that I have, I thought that was going to release me. I was feeling good at that moment. But, you know, just to see him, his attitude to not say anything to the families, that guy was, uh, it was a monster. You know, he doesn't deserve to be here. It was too easy for him. They just put that injection to him. That was too easy for what he did to all the victims. He didn't give them an opportunity, you know, to be with their families, to, to enjoy their kids. The gentleman coming to the microphone said, John Allah Muhammad has expired 9-11. And my children went three different directions. For all of Muhammad's claims that he loved his children, the children that he told Lee he was desperate to see again, Muhammad didn't speak to his children when he had the opportunity. My son went by himself and I said, honey, are you okay? He said, I'm good, Ma. I'm good. So then I went to Taliba. She was on the floor screaming, crying uncontrollably. I picked her up, cradled her, go over to Selena. She's whimpering on the sofa. I said, honey, you okay? No, mommy, I'm not okay. I said, okay, tell me what's going on. Do you understand that daddy was gonna kill you? Yep, I understand that completely. He didn't love us, Mom. He didn't love us if he was going to kill you. I hate him. I say, no, you don't. You don't hate him. Don't tell me how I feel. I said, okay. He's gone now. You got to let it go. It's going to kill you. Got to let it go. And she looked up at me, and I knew what she was looking for. She was looking for some type of emotion that I had because her dad had just been executed. I had absolutely nothing. When he said to me, you have become my enemy, and as my enemy, I will kill you, I severed every emotional tie to him. To me, he was a stranger being executed. Why would Muhammad put his own children through the terror of the D.C. attacks? Why did he go to Prince George's County, Maryland, the county where they lived, to shoot a boy the same age as his son John? Some suggest that Muhammad didn't just want to kill Mildred, he wanted to terrorize her. And what happened to his children was just collateral damage. After all, Muhammad's need for violence seemed to override the love he claimed to feel for Malvo as well. Muhammad told Malvo that he loved him, but then let Malvo fall on the sword after they were arrested. Criminologist Anthony Mioli says Lee reflected on this years later. The interesting thing about the shootings, and this is really somewhat fascinating, all of the shots that were taken outside of the car were done by Lee. So John purposely put Lee in the view of the public when they already had a sniper roost inside the Caprice set up. All the shots taken inside the car were done by John when he was fully covered and not able to be identified. If anything was to be done where there was a chance of getting caught or risk of 
getting shot at in the process because this has happened several times. Went to rob someone and they were armed and I got shot at and I had to kill them in the process. He was nowhere to be found. He was somewhere hiding in the DC shooting. If there was anything to be done where there was a major risk, he had me do it. If he was so caring about his son, so to say, why put Lee out in a position where he was at such risk? You know, the calls to the police are Lee Boyd Malvo's voice. So it, it's very interesting that John almost purposely put Lee as the shooter and almost could have made a case for himself saying, well, this guy did all the shootings. It wasn't me. Uh, here's his voice on tape. Malvo's lawyers also felt that Muhammad may have just been using Malvo for the crimes. Lee was under this misbelief that they were going to have this utopia. And John Muhammad was saying, we're going to get the government to pay for it. I mean, what person would rationally think that's going to happen? But a kid who's indoctrinated that's following this leader believes it. I don't know what was going to happen to Lee after he got his kids back. I don't know, because Lee would then eventually realize there wasn't this $10 million from the government that's going to pay for this utopia. Maybe John Muhammad was going to kill Lee. With Muhammad gone, all we have now is Malvo's story. When we began this season, a Supreme Court case was set to decide whether Malvo would be eligible for parole. But the question of whether Malvo deserves to be in prison has gone from the theoretical to the concrete. Due to recent developments that we'll discuss next episode, Lee Boyd Malvo could one day walk the streets again. Malvo will be eligible for parole as early as 2022. Next time on Monster, DC Sniper. Obviously, our goal is to do the best we can for him, and you know what he wants. He wants to be out and be able to live his life. I had dreams at one point. I wanted to do great things. Lawyers would argue that absent Muhammad, he wouldn't have committed these crimes at all, and that what good is it to warehouse him in a supermax facility for the next 60 years? We end up always looking at these fantastic cases like Malvo. That's not how most of these cases go down. Most of these cases are a heavy trigger finger, an armed robbery gone bad, stupid, stupid behavior that tragically results in a stupid, stupid outcome. I mean, you could resentence him all you want. It doesn't take away from the fact that eight people, at least, will never be brought back. At the time, I was thinking, well, he should be locked up forever and ever. Um, now, I'd like to kind of see whether or not he's really changed. Monster DC Sniper is a 15-episode podcast hosted by Tony Harris and produced by iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio, alongside producers Trevor Young, Ben Kiebrick, and Josh Thane. Payne Lindsay and Donald Albright are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV, alongside producers Meredith Stedman and Christina Dana. Original music is by Makeup and Vanity Set. If you haven't already, be sure to check out the first two seasons, Atlanta Monster and Monster the Zodiac Killer. If you have questions or comments, email us at monster at iheartmedia.com, or you can call us at 1-833-285-6667. Thanks for listening.
Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.